On Sunday, just got back from just under two weeks in Israel, uh, an actual vacation for a change, which is why Jody came with me. Uh, with all the times that I go to Israel, people often ask her, are you going with him? Are you going with him? And she says, no, he's working. It's like, it's going to be in meetings all day and doing all these kind of things. That's not for me. This trip she came because it was a vacation. It was also the celebration of my nephew's bar mitzvah at Robinson's Arch at Ezrat Yisrael in Jerusalem, uh, which was lovely. Uh, it was the first time that our entire family, the five of us, have been together in a year and a half. Uh, it's part of the challenges when you live all over the world, literally. And it was the first time that my sister and her family and my father and Irene and 14 of us basically uh, traveled together in any way, shape, or form. And it was lovely. I had the time of my life. And being in Israel is always something that I love to do. And Israel was wonderful. It was really wonderful. The, the weather was great, a little hot, very hot, very, very hot. <laughs> but the weather was great. Um, the restaurants were full. The beach was overflowing with people in Tel Aviv. Jerusalem was jam-packed. Um, the, the, the country was alive and bustling. And if you didn't go to the rally on Kaplan Street in Tel Aviv, uh, or if you didn't go to the Knesset, which we did, you wouldn't have necessarily have known that anything was amiss in the country. That's how fabulous it just seemed to be in Israel at that time. And if you spoke to average Israelis, which I always do, much to my children's chagrin, even to this day, if you speak to average Israelis, average Israelis go, oh, that Balagan, that's just for the politicians. What are they concerned about? They're still concerned about the rise in terrorism and crime, especially in the Arab communities that are impacting their daily lives and the cost of milk and eggs and cheese and rent. Right? What, is, what average Israelis are concerned about are the things that average human beings are concerned about. The cost of living. How do you provide for yourself and your family? All the other mishigas that's taking place, people are aware of it. Most people are aware of it. I mean, how can they not be aware of it? 400,000 people are coming to the streets in Tel Aviv and around Israel 27 weeks in a row now, which is astonishing. But on the surface, and I would, I would even imagine we left just before the operation in Janine happened. And I'd been in Israel many, many times during these kinds of operations. Um, and other than the concern of soldiers, especially if you're a parent of a child that is currently serving in the IDF, other than the concern for soldiers, I bet there's not a single Israeli that was planning to go to the beach that didn't go to the beach. No one stopped going to restaurants. On the surface, everything seemed not only fine, but quite frankly, wonderful. But we know that that's not the case. Now, I'm thinking about this because when we turn to the Torah reading of this morning, Parshat Pinchas, uh, I think very much the same thing, the same type of psychology seems to apply. Certainly in the opening statements, Pinchas is a zealot. 
Right? I mentioned this in the beginning to the Torah reading. Last week in the, in the Torah reading, Pinchas sees a Israelite prince and a, um, a, a, a Moabite woman, um, I mean, we're adults, fornicating in front of the tent of meeting. And in a fit of zealotry and, and rage and passion for preserving God's dignity, he takes a spear and he drives it through both of them in the act. And in the beginning of this week's Torah reading, what is it that, pin, that we learn about Pinchas? Two things that, if you don't read it in the context of what happened previously, you would think that Pinchas is Pinchas's behavior in some way, shape, or form is, is not only accepted, but is honored. He is promised the kahuna, the priesthood, and he receives a breach shalom, a covenant of peace, which the Eitz Chaim, I think, terribly translate as a covenant of friendship. Um, so Pinchas, um, Pinchas is a zealot hero, it seems, for the Torah, and is rewarded for his actions, for his, his passion acting on God's behalf. Now the rabbis, the rabbis later, much later, thousands of years later, the rabbis look at this and they dial it back. They dial it back a lot. Uh, we've talked about this before. Um, I'll just remind us of one of the things that they do. They make the circumstances of Pinchas' action so unique that it's only in that moment, in those circumstances, exactly, that his actions are to be allowed. In fact, the rabbis say that if Pinchas would have come and asked for permission to do that, he would have been denied permission because such an act of zealotry is an avera, is a sin. And the rabbis would not have allowed it. Right? But that's only later that the rabbis walk it back. And the Torah, on the surface, it seems that everything is fine. You look to the Haftarah that we didn't read today, which is a shame, <laughs> but the Haftarah that we didn't read today is the Haftarah of Elijah. It is part of a long narrative of the Elijah tales in which Elijah has just finished, it's not in the Haftarah itself, but the context of the Haftarah is Elijah is a zealot for God against the Israelites who are worshiping Baal. And he challenges the priests, the, the Kohanim of Baal to a duel, right? We're gonna go up onto Mount Carmel, you're going to create your sacrifice. You're going to bring your bull for Baal. I'm going to bring my bull for God. And we're going to light our fires. And we're going to see which one God accepts. And whichever one God accepts wins the duel. And not surprisingly, a miracle occurs. Fire comes down from heaven. And Elijah's sacrifice is accepted. Baals is not, and then Elijah goes on a killing rampage, killing hundreds of the priests of Baal, and says the same words from the Shorsh Kana, the same words, that he is zealous for God. 
But what happens next in the Haftarah is fascinating. By the way, I should mention that in many a rabbinic mind, in the Midrash, or at least in a couple of the Midrashim, the rabbis view Pinchas and Elijah as the same person. Now, there are lots of reasons that they want to do that. Maybe it's because they want to limit the number of people that are actually acting this way. It's more comfortable for them to have one person who is a zealot rather than two. Because if you have two, then you must have four. And if you have four, then you must have eight, and so forth. And so for the rabbis, again, perhaps that's one of the ways in which they dial this back. But the Tanakh itself, I think, teaches us an important lesson about zealotry, even in the way in which it draws a distinction between Elijah in the Haftarah and Pinchas in the Torah. Elijah as a result of this, he has to flee for his life because King Ahav tells Jezebel and Jezebel wants Elijah's head for the killing spree that he went on. And so Elijah flees to Beersheba out of her reach in order to maintain his life. And each step of the way, He's fearful of his life. He's fearful for his life. And he has this growing sense of abandonment from God and a disconnect from the people for whom he was supposedly acting so passionate and zealous for. And it's not until the end of the story that he finally reaches Mount Horeb and he receives perhaps one of the most awesome revelations in the entire Tanakh. Right? This is the, 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 the circumstance, um, and it reminds us of Moshe. Right? It gives us a, a, a remez, a hint of Moshe, that he's standing on the mountain and God passes by. And there was a mighty wind that split the mountains and shattered rocks by the power of God. But where was God? God was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake. And yet God was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, there was fire, but God was not in the fire. And after the fire, there was kol demama raka, the still, soft, whispering voice of God. And when Elijah heard it, says the book of Kings, when he heard it, he wrapped his mantle about his face. He went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And then a voice addressed him. And God says to him, why are you here? Why are you here, Elijah? Vayomer, and he says, kano kineti ladonai. He answers as he did previously, I am moved by zealotry, by zeal for God. And the Israelites have forsaken your covenant. They tore down your altars and have put your prophets to the sword. I alone 
am left. And they're now out to take my life. It's an amazing prophecy for which literally thousands and thousands of pages of ink have been written trying to understand what it means. But for our context, the very next thing that happens is that God says to Elijah, you got to go. Go back the way you came to the wilderness. And he gives him a task in which he's got to anoint. He's got to um, uh, anoint uh, Yehu Venishmi to be um, the king of, uh, to be um, uh, king of Israel and Elisha to take his place as prophet. Now that's the fascinating part. After all this, God seems to restore Elisha's sense of abandonment, raises him up again to prophecy, but yet fires him from the job. He appoints his successor. And the Midrash wants to know what happened such that Elijah gets fired from the job. Now we know Elijah has plenty of other work to do. As a prophet, we still invite him in to be the harbinger of the, of the Mashiach, right? But what happens that Elijah, after this awesome prophecy, has to basically appoint his own successor? And what the, what the Midrash suggests is that in this prophecy, Elijah missed the point. The point is, God is toning down God's mood and trying to tone down Elijah's mood in the same way. Right? It starts with all this awesome acts of nature, wind-splitting mountains, earthquakes, fire. But where's God? God's not in any of the noise. God's not found in any of the awesome nature of destruction. God is found in the still, small voice. Perhaps that's the voice of reason, understanding, compassion. And Elijah misses that point. And when God asks, where are you? Which also reminds me of God asking Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden after they've eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and bad. God says, Ayeka, where are you? Why does God need to ask the question? Doesn't God know? Just as then, here, the question isn't one of geography. The question is one of moral position. Where are you morally? Where are you in terms of your own rage and passions? Are you going to allow them to run wild and split mountains and cause earthquakes and fires? Or are you going to center yourself in godliness? And so the Midrash suggests that it's because Elijah missed that lesson in this exchange, in this revelation, that he loses his job. In the same way, the breach shalom, according to the rabbis, and maybe they're reading this passage of Elijah as they're reading that passage in Pinchas, the breach shalom is not a reward, it's a tikkun, 
It's a repair when one's passion runs amiss and it needs to be reined in. It's a fascinating lesson for us and it shows us in the Torah how things aren't always as they appear. In Israel, well, even before I get to that, I want to I quote Rabbi uh, Shai Held in his commentary uh, on this Parsha. He brings American theologian Walter uh, Brueggemann and notes that in his zeal, as often happens to the zealous, Elijah has overvalued his significance. His sense of his own importance in his own story has blinded him to the reality around him. Professor Rufin Kimmelman, Kimmelman um, our teacher from JTS, um, states that in failing to rise to Israel's defense, Elijah proves himself unworthy of the prophetic mantle. He is thus sent back to anoint a prophetic successor, the only prophet to do so in the whole Bible. He is to tender his resignation. Now, the Haftarah does not condemn zealotry outright, and of course, neither does the Torah. It takes the rabbis to roll that back, but it does warn about the ways in which it can blind us and lead us to see the other as the other. The danger facing Israel today and much of the world is the rise of zealotry and fanaticism and extremism that does the exact same, that leads not only to division, but, the, to, de but to the demonization of the other. And that's why today's Haftarah, I think, also becomes important and part of this story. We have entered the period of the three weeks before Tisha B'Av, the telling of the Haftarah, the Haftarot of admonition. Jeremiah, the Haftarah is a rebuke. It's a warning of the consequences of straying from God's will and overestimating your own importance. The first temple, according to tradition, was destroyed because Israel, the Israelites broke the covenant with God. The second temple, because they broke their covenant with each other and allowed Sinat Chinam, senseless hatred, to reign. Rabbi Yochanan in the Talmud says that Jerusalem was destroyed because there were 24 factions that were vying for power. And their concern was for their own power, not for the leadership of the people or of the commonwealth of the political entity. And in the demonization of the other is what Rabbi Yochanan is suggesting, Sinat Chinam lives and communities are destroyed. So perhaps these stories, Pinchas, Elijah, and Jeremiah on this morning, as we begin this period, counting the days to Tisha B'Av and then from Tisha B'Av to Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, come to remind us, to warn us about extremism and that the goal, our goal, should always be to foster dialogue and to seek understanding rather than the per perpetuating of, of a cycle of violence and hatred. What we have to listen to is not the noise, but the kol de mama raka, the still small voice of God 
functioning as our conscious for good. Shabbat Shalom.